Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Wendy Bashnan. Wendy is a supervisory special agent with the Diplomatic Security Service and a member of the Senior Foreign Service. Currently, she serves as the Deputy Assistant Secretary and Assistant Director to the Training Directorate. In this capacity, she advises the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Diplomatic Security and the Director on the formulation and implementation of all security and law enforcement training programs and policies for DS. She manages a directorate comprised of the Office of Anti-Terrorism Assistance, the Office of Foreign Affairs Security Training Center, and the Office of Mobile Security Deployments. In her previous assignment as Director of NATO Office of Security, Wendy served as the Principal Security Advisor to the Secretary General and to the Chairman of the NATO Military Committee. Prior to NATO, Wendy served as the Executive Assistant to the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Diplomatic Security. She also served as Special Agent in Charge for the New York Field Office and Miami Field Office, as well as a Senior Regional Security Officer in the U.S. Consulate in Erbil, Iraq, and the U.S. Embassy in Caracas, Venezuela. Wendy also served as the Deputy Olympic Security Coordinator in Beijing, the Agent in Charge for the Office of Dignitary Protection, serving as a major events coordinator for the United Nations General Assembly 60th anniversary. She also served in Cairo, Guyana, and Eritrea. Wendy, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me here. It's, a, it's an honor to, to be able to participate today. Oh, my goodness. It's such a pleasure to have you on, Wendy. You know, DS has always been near and dear to my heart because I feel that it gave me my start. And I look back over your very distinguished career. And as you look at all those assignments, Wendy, which do you like the best? Wow. You know, that's like picking your favorite child. Uh, (laughs) I joined DS because I had a love of law enforcement, a love of the legal systems, and then the love of travel. And working for the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service enabled me to tie them all together and be able to take my love of travel and learning and experiencing different cultures with also my love for law enforcement and, you know, legal systems. And I love experiencing other cultures and finding commonalities between us as human beings. Wendy, tell me about the new DS Training Center. I hear it's awesome. It is, and we're very proud of it. And I I will say this, Fred, it took a long time for us uh, within Diplomatic Security Service to bring together this consolidated campus for hard skills and soft skills training. I look at training as a holistic process for for employees and for your entire workforce. And I often tell my staff, we shape human capital. And with that, you need to be able to have the facilities to do that and to be able to respond to the evolving threats that are that are around us worldwide. 
And so this new campus, which is slightly over 1,300 square acres, sitting on uh, a much larger U.S. military base in the middle of Virginia, allows us to, to make a lot of noise, allows us to grow and evolve our training, and allows us to replicate as close as we can to what we would call reality. So you, you can imagine when you're doing law enforcement training, you can move students from one venue to another and you can extract the information and the response that you've been teaching these students by stressing them, by giving them new trigger points to be thinking about that makes them bring their hard tactical skills together with their soft skills, which, you know, the ability to negotiate and the ability to what I call empathetically respond to their environments. It's really amazing work that we're doing and we're very proud of it. It's it's a lot of driving tracks. It's a lot of uh, firearms ranges, a lot of tactical mazes. We're just really proud of it and, and wish everyone could come and see it. Yeah, I will certainly take you up on that offer. I'd I'd love to come and see it. I I know when I went through training, we were we were very scattered about, and and we longed for having our own place uh, to call home. Much like the Secret Service had Beltsville and the FBI had Quantico, it's marvelous uh, thing to say that we have our own now. Also, this facility trains security engineering officers as well. Correct. So not at the exact campus, but it. What we've done is we have, because there's an equal importance to the technical security side of training, as well as what we would call our hard skills, tactical training. So what we're doing is we are remodeling and renovating a different campus to create our new technical security engineering training center that will be the bookend for FAST-C. So we will have our hard skills in Blackstone, Virginia, and then here in the national capital region, we'll have our technical security engineering. And we're using a lot of the lessons learned that we've done from, from you know, partnering with uh, other federal law enforcement agencies like the FBI, like you, were, you mentioned in the Secret Service, and using a lot of their best practices to bring it all into one consolidated system where we can try to stay ahead of a lot of the, the threats that are out there. Uh, we can brainstorm with fellow law enforcement and federal agencies within the different communities to really be able to dynamically affect our workforce so that they have the skills necessary to, as we send them out all over the world, to respond and to have that resilience. And we're really proud equally of the secure, you know, the technical security engineering training center, which is still in construction. We're about halfway through this process, um, but it's, it's an amazing facility as well. And if you think FASC is awesome, you would love the TSET seat. Yeah, that's pretty cool. In the time you've been with the organization, Wendy, what are some of the significant changes that you've seen in training over the years? You know, again, I go back to we shape human capital. We focus not just on hard skills on the tactical side of law enforcement and security, but also now on the cyber side, on the what we call soft skills, which is it's investigations, it's influencing, it's how to do crisis management and crisis response. 
all those elements, the leadership parts of and management that we want to ensure that our workforce has. You know, having the access to these consolidated training venues allows us to, as I mentioned, kind of replicate the real world. And, and the, the fact that our workforce have has absolutely has to be able to move quickly from a very calm situation to maybe a very volatile situation and then be able to ratchet back. And these consolidated venues allow us to test our people and, and, to, and to, to truly enable them to move freely. And, you know, the soft skills give a good bookend to the hard skills, right? Sure. So that you have a well-rounded workforce. And, and, and honestly, technology and, and the cybersecurity side of this is, is so much, it's growing more and more into the old way of security. You can remember and appreciate years ago, you know, we focused on guards and gates and, and cameras. And, and nowadays, everything has an IP address. And so we need a workforce that knows how to not only manage those systems, but also how to maximize them with efficiency. Yeah. And that's so good to hear because I, I know just based on my time in the organization, which is uh, ancient history now, Wendy, but uh, when you look back, uh, being thrown into the fire, it was kind of what we did. I mean, I came on and we had that generation of uh, uh, the predecessor of DSS, the Office of Security known as SY, and we had all of the old timers from the 60s and the 70s that were there. And my goodness, they were all trial by fire, you know, thrown into locations, uh, understaffed, and in many cases, um, unprepared to deal with crisis around the globe. And and I can recall even going out to doing some of the initial hostage debriefings that we were heavily engaged with. And and quite frankly, never been trained to, to do that properly. So it was a learning experience. And I, I think we, we learn by just doing the job. Would you, is that a, a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. Within Diplomatic Security Service, we have these leadership tenants. And one of them, which I'm very strong on, is learn constantly. And, and we have to share what we learn. It can't just be to learn and then hold it for yourself. But, you know, to take those best practices from not only within the State Department, but with other federal agencies, share it to as many people as possible. You know, you and I came on, you know, you described coming on uh, after SY. And, and of course, I came on in between after what we call the Inman hirings and before the East Africa bombings. We've learned a lot in those 26, 30 years. And, and, the, and what it is is because we are evolving and we are not only reacting to new threats that come in, but evolving in how we create a more resilient, a stronger workforce that can not only tackle the current threat, but the future threats and really put time and effort into thinking about what's going to be the threat five years from now. Wendy, what, how has training changed since uh, what unfolded in Benghazi? Fred, that's a great question. I think the things that jump out at me first is that security is everyone's responsibility. We've moved we had it in place before Benghazi, but after Benghazi, we, we've taken it to a whole nother level. And that was, it's a new course that we created and revitalized. It's called the Foreign Affairs Counter Threat Course. And this is where every member of the foreign affairs community that has to go work and live overseas doing diplomacy has to go through this one week course 
where we give them not only counterterrorism training, but like how to deal with protest and, and how to respond to medical emergencies when you don't have adequate hospital care immediately close by and how to respond to criminal activity. It enables and again, builds a resilience within our workforce to take ownership in their own personal security and in their own safety. Um, it's a phenomenal course. And I'll tell you, my experience at NATO the European Union and NATO have similar courses. They call them a little different, but it's essentially the same concept. Give your workforce that personal security experience and training so that they can respond as well. And they become those force multipliers for your security teams. So we call it FACT. It's a great course. Uh, you've seen it on television. It's It's been highlighted uh, most recently by CBS Good Morning, who did a piece on it, even while we've been going through COVID. The other thing that came out from Benghazi, which we had not looked at as a weapon before, is fire. As what we've seen with the Arab Spring and, and then even going on further into the future, bad actors use fire as a weapon. And so we actually have a course material, which we teach uh, both to our law enforcement staff, as well as our foreign affairs community, which is fire as a weapon, which teaches people how to respond when they're caught in a situation with smoke and fire, how to get out safely, how to protect yourself so that, again, incidents like Benghazi can be prevented and hopefully mitigated as best we can. I think the other things that came out from Benghazi is also an enhanced purpose to use more protective intelligence from the intelligence community, as well as open source intel intelligence, so that we are staying abreast of everything that's going on in an environment and, and trying to, again, look at trends and look at what people are saying on Twitter and Snapchat and et cetera, and looking for those anomalies that we go, you know what, this is not normal and we may need to start tracking this because this could elevate to a higher risk. I think those are the key things that I see coming out of Benghazi that, that jump out off the page. Yeah, that that's amazing. And I I had no doubt that the organization would course correct and also uh, try to get in front of these threats. You know, it's amazing, uh, Wendy. I'm I'm doing some uh, research for a, a new book that I'm I'm working on, and I went back to a, an old book written called Embassies Under Siege. And interestingly, our former Assistant Secretary of State for Diplomatic Security, Ambassador Quainton, oh. had wrote the uh, introduction for that, and it's a fascinating look at previous attacks that have taken place. And one of the drawing lessons from it, uh, which is, I think resonates, is uh, it is not possible to protect against every danger. We often prepare well for the last war or the last crisis. And, you know, as an organization, I think that you should be applauded for the forward vision for the training center and everything that DS is doing to kind of look out over the horizon for those threats that are developing. Well, thank you, Fred. And, and I'll say it's not easy. You absolutely get tied into your day-to-day -day operations and, you know, trying to learn those lessons from the past, but also anticipating how it may change and evolve for the future requires time. And, and often it requires a commitment to step away from the day-to-day -day grind force yourself and your colleagues to, to take a moment, take a breath and say, okay, what are we missing? What is still out there before you jump right back in, right? Because inevitably, you know, Fred, you can recall from your time overseas, we often end up playing fire person or firefighter and just putting out the day-to-day -day issues that are popping up across your desk and rarely get the time to 
to kind of step back and try to be strategic. Uh, but it requires a commitment. And I think that's also one of the elements that we're trying to teach our workforce is, is to do that. Because in many ways, sad to say, but it, it would be innovative. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.ai/center. That's ontech.ai/center. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about special event security. I know. Uh, having participated in a lot, whether it be the United Nations General Assemblies, the the various inaugurations over the years, the Middle East peace conferences, and so forth. And and I vividly recall running protective intelligence operations down at the Olympics in Atlanta, and everything was fine until the bomb went off. You know, it all it kind of is until those kinds of things happen. But uh, how has special event security changed over the years, and and how is DS? kind of leading the way in, in global international events like this? Another great question. And it's funny, you know, I also worked the Atlanta Olympics. I was actually part of the protective detail on the Israeli team in Atlanta. And you're right, everything's working until a bomb goes off, right? Yeah, that was an interesting, that was an interesting detail in itself, but uh, you're absolutely right. right. And, and remember, the way we were handling special events back in 1996 was in response to what was happening uh, as a response to the 1970s when you had the Munich uh, Olympics attack, right? right? right. Uh, and there we focused on the venues, right? The official venues and what Atlanta told us because special events is more than just, especially sporting events, it's more than just the event. You have all of the interactive fan-based events that happen. They lead up to the events. They're during the events. You know, it's designed to maximize fan participation. You know, those fans that can't pay the hundreds of dollars to go in and see the Super Bowl, but they still want that experience. All of those events are now what we used to call soft targets. And Atlanta showed us that that Centennial Park became a target, but we weren't necessarily looking at it from the same lens. And of course, lessons learned from that and that we take forward is that for especially sporting events, you have to equally put your security processes and procedures and, and screening and crisis management to address those venues as much as you're talking about your stadiums or your, your Olympic villages or the hotels where your, your teams are staying. You know, the other thing is it's not always sporting events. I look at the lessons that we learned from 1999, where you had the, the WTO summit that was in Seattle. And remember how those protests started oh, yeah. and they, it took over the entire city. You had a police force that became quickly overwhelmed while you were still trying to have a summit. 
again, we learned lessons from that, that, you know, we now still use as we plan a United Nations General Assembly, or if you're going to have a NATO heads of state summit, we realize now that it's, you have to look at the totality of the event and everything that comes into play. And it's not just about putting guards and gates around one area, but looking at a whole city. And then you could add to that, I also look at how things have changed after the Mandela Bay shooting that happened in Vegas back in 2017. Again, yeah. not a typical typical event, right? But right. look how a mass shooting affects an, an entire industry now. You know, these are the things where special events have changed because one, it's not just about having access control and screening. It's about having your crisis response plans. It's about bringing fire, police, FEMA, you know, all these elements in the same room before with the pre-planning, during the event and afterwards. It's about sharing responsibility and sharing goals and objectives. It's, it's really meta leadership at it, at its uh, truest form because that's how you actually, if, if you do get hit with a crisis, which of course, none of us want to have to go through a crisis in a special event, but you also want to be prepared when it happens. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of major event or special event planning has has really moved to a whole nother level when it comes to that crisis planning and crisis response and, and, and that interagency or interorganization collaboration up front occurs. For DS, you know, we participate in the International Sporting Events Working Group, and I'm not using the right terminology, I apologize. We sit on this uh, working group and, and task force and, and we share uh, information. And then as events are being classified as national security special events, you know, whether they're a tier one, a tier two or a tier three, you know, we could be just like the Secret Service, we could be uh, set to be the, the lead coordinator for this event and Secret Service will have that event. We still have to work together. But the thing is that we're, we're tracking all of these and we're sharing this information so that we get a better product and, and in the end, a better experience for the participants. Yeah. And the marvel of the logistics behind the scenes, as you know, Wendy, is I've, I've also tried to explain to folks over the years that people have no idea the amount of planning that goes on for months ahead of time and the logistics and just the coordination and, and the meetings and so forth. It's these special events are, are very well planned, you know, not to mention, you know, our upcoming inauguration, you know, there's so much that goes in behind the scenes for those. Oh, absolutely. You, you know, you said months, but sometimes it can be years. I mean, I, I, we have colleagues that have been in Tokyo for over two years planning the Summer Olympics, which of course, unfortunately, were postponed from this summer to go to next summer. Uh, we already have colleagues in Beijing to handle the next Winter Olympics. We have a team that works on the annual United Nations General Assembly. They work on it year round. Uh, and then, like you said, the inauguration, absolutely something that only happens every four years. But the planning that goes into it, the detail that goes into it and the interagency cooperation to an outsider, it would be mind boggling. The elephant in the room now, Wendy, is COVID. And uh, I, I can't imagine working close protection on a protective detail, whether it's the Secretary of State. For those listeners that, that may not know that, uh, the Diplomatic Security Service protects the Secretary of State and has for many, many years, but also a lot of foreign dignitaries and so forth. How has COVID impacted not only the protection mission, 
of dignitary protection, embassy protection, but the general work life at the State Department. Well, it's had a tremendous effect, right? And I think some of it is going to be long term as we go forward. It's actually going to give us opportunities to rethink some of uh, of our processes. When it comes to protection, I think one of the first things that we learned when COVID first was affecting us in the United States, we, we saw it affecting us globally, was that there had to be a, a very quick synergy that was created between the Office of Medicine and the Office of Diplomatic Security, because we were not the experts on how to protect your workforce, right? The doctors and the scientists were. So I think one of the first things that we did in Diplomatic Security Service was partner with the Office of Medicine and say, look, we have a national security requirement. Our mission has to continue, but we also need to protect our workforce and our visiting dignitaries. How can we do that? What best, right? And, and it comes down to 10, 11 months later, we're still using those basic elements that came out from the CDC. Wash your hands with soap and water. Use hand sanitizer. Use face coverings. Increase sanitization of items, whether that's equipment that you're carrying, whether that's sitting in a car, you know, that's moving uh, into buildings and et cetera. You know, those elements using PPE and sanitation have been tremendous in enabling the, the State Department and the Foreign Service to continue doing its mission safely, protecting its workforce where we can. There have been a lot of other things that have come in from covid you know, as we travel overseas, because you mentioned DS protecting the Secretary of State. And of course, he still needs to continue to travel and engage and do the U.S. diplomacy. One of the things that we required and had to adjust is the planning element to that, right? Which we were really good at. We work with his staff very closely, but now we have to take into new considerations. What are the quarantine requirements and the testing requirements going into a country and then coming back from a country? How do you then plan to incorporate that into your staffing models so that you have enough people on the ground? DS has been very fortunate, knock on wood, to be able to, to say uh, with reliability and credibility that the safety protocols that we have implemented both at our training center, as well as, as we do our work, whether it's criminal investigations or protection, are protecting our workforce and keeping our workforce safe. And, and then in the end, they're also protecting the visiting dignitaries that come in that we have to serve and protect. Yeah. And uh, you raise an interesting point. I, I had not thought of uh, the quarantine requirements with certain countries. And uh the staffing and ramifications to that. So that's, that's a fascinating twist that a lot of people would not think about in, in our global mission. Yeah, and, and it's not just the State Department. I think a lot of corporate security and, and the corporate world as a whole are realizing this as well. If you have staff, I, I think of journalism, I think of the media industry where they have to send journalists out around the world to, to cover events or, or incidents that happen. They now have to take that kind of stuff into consideration and they have to have almost a standing bank that's updated regularly of, you know, what is the European Union now requiring for entry into and then exiting out of. Is it a test within 48 hours? Is it a test within 96 hours? Uh, is there another test that has to be done within 48 hours of being on the ground? There's just lots of things that come in. Before, we used to only care about what were the visa requirements. Now you have to take into account the, the COVID testing requirements and quarantines. Amazing. Wendy, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? You know, 
Fred, I, I think we've covered a lot. Uh, you know, we've talked about what DS is doing from a training standpoint and how, how we've evolved and how the world is changing. I think what, what I, I see is that even though we're in lots of challenges uh, with COVID and, and maybe whatever becomes the next pandemic, because uh, I think most of us realize that, you know, these don't go away completely. I think it, it's an opportunity to address how we do things, change things, right? Bring in new concepts, revitalize and sometimes dust off old ones. But really, instead of freezing, which of course, you know, in your world and in my world, you know, we always talk about don't freeze, get off the X. But this is an opportunity to really take a breath and then change where we want to go for the future. And, and, and I think it's really exciting. And it's a great time to be in security to be in this, even though it's depressing at times, you know, we're, we're isolated from friends and colleagues, but you know what? We're still thriving and we're doing the mission. And, and, and that's because we have an amazing workforce and I'm very proud of them. And you should be. Thank you so much, Wendy, for being on the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks, Fred. Thanks to everybody and good luck. This episode was brought to you by the OnTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.